Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, December 6th. 2020. 2020, just a little bit left in 2020, and we are at episode 199. Whoa. Yes. a lot. 200 episodes. I don't know what we're going to do to celebrate I know, we better our think about bi- it. No, yeah, bicentennial episode. That's a bit much, giving it that <laughs> label. Anyway, today on Polylog, we're talking about the vaccine developments. Hopefully, fingers crossed, toes crossed, everything crossed, there should be deploying the vaccine in just a few weeks. Well, technically, what I heard is they could have it within 36 hours of approval, which could happen Thursday or Friday. Correct. It'll be a a miracle if it's in someone's arm by Saturday. I don't really believe that. But yes, we should have vaccine deployment very, very soon. We're also going to be talking about COVID relief that is fingers, toes, everything crossed, supposedly having real momentum in Congress right now. And then lastly, we're going to talk about election security and really what that means. We'll have a brief conversation. We've talked about it the last few weeks, but some comments that were made just today and, and what that means for how we look at elections moving forward. But to start us off, as always, highlight low light, starting low, going high, Naomi, what is our low light this week? So our low light, and I don't know, maybe we've talked about this at some point. It sounds, it feels like something I would have ranted about at some point, but Our general low light is the lack of any explanation across any show trying to explain to the average American person, person in the world anywhere, why there has been no COVID relief since June. Absolutely. I mean, as was mentioned by some Democrats who happened to pop on the show today, the Democrats themselves in the House passed a substantial COVID relief bill months and months and months ago in in the House of Representatives. Yes. And things just kept stalling and stalling and stalling. Nancy Pelosi was in extensive conversations with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, who was representing the White House on this. And originally after that House bill passed, the White House had zero desire to kind of send a counterproposal and they wanted to wait and see how the summer went. Like they literally took no action intentionally for several months. Yes, we heard and we heard from this stray Republican on this topic on the Sunday show saying, well, we just passed, you know, historic relief. Let's see how that money gets distributed. By late summer, fall, it was very clear that that money had run out, that the country was in dire need of support, that localities and states were facing budget deficits that would require them to lay off, you know, hundreds, thousands of frontline workers, including police, including uh, firefighters, teachers and no relief happened small businesses were in dire need of relief and it just wasn't happening and there was not a real explainer about 
why exactly things were stalling, why Republicans in the Senate had not really stepped up to be even a part of those conversations, how Mitch McConnell wasn't a part of those conversations. And frankly, what I have been frustrated by is why Republicans have not been forthright in explaining their position. I would love to hear Republicans stand up and say why right now they have been on the side of less and less and less relief, and Democrats we know have been on the side of more and more and more relief. Democrats have been very forthright in explaining the need for relief. Republicans from the states have talked about why relief is important to them and their constituencies, right? But what we haven't heard is why Republicans in the Senate have been so resistant. We have heard whispers about concerns about the budget deficit, about concerns about relief going to Democrat cities, Democrat states. But I would like to see a really detailed explanation, a real meaningful case built for why these Republicans have been so resistant to helping the economy during this really, really important time and how that has dragged out over months and months and people are in such dire need right now. So I'm very frustrated that we haven't seen that timeline and why that hasn't become a regular segment whenever this topic arises. That's our low light this week. Yeah, and I think there's multiple motivations for this low light. I think it's important for people to understand where the bottleneck is. It's important for people to understand where the disagreement within the Republican Party is and trying to understand, Yes, like, am I on the McConnell side of that we need to watch and not spend anything? Or am I on the side of Mnuchin, who says, you know, we do need support right away, but maybe at X amount. Like, I think if... If you're a Republican, it's even hard to know how the party feels about it. Yeah, or Republican governors, right? like Governor Hogan, or members of the state assemblies in Michigan who have been advocating to Trump directly about the need for relief, right? There are plenty of Republicans who want relief. They just don't happen to be the ones with the power in the Senate to make that happen, or haven't until now. Absolutely. And then the last thing I would say is, how does our economic relief compare to other countries? I mean, I think that's the part for me where I'm like, are are other developed, you know, leading nations just letting people suffer like this? I don't think so. And I don't understand why the American media ecosystem does not contextualize that gap between our response and our peer nations. And we've heard again and again about what the cost is to our nation and our economy of the delays in this relief getting out there, or of this relief being not enough. But what I don't understand is what is the argument on the other side? What is the cost of this relief, right? Why would Republicans or anyone say not to put this relief out there? What are they concerned about? Again, is it the budget deficit? You know, what is the legitimate concern about putting money into the economy at such such an important time right now? This conversation needs to be bigger. It needs to be more expansive, and it should not be centered solely on whatever the latest package is or whatever the latest discussion is on Capitol Hill. I mean, and... and like, let's compare this to another issue, right? Like, if this was healthcare, right? 
and thinking around the Affordable Care Act and its replacements or whatever, there would be conversations about how much, you know, it costs to have so many people uninsured. There would be conversations about what types of plans people are on and how much they cost or whatever. There would be that data and that context to help us understand the negotiations and the fight that is before us, right? But we don't see that when it comes to this relief bill. And it's even more dire, I would say, because the need is so pressing, it's so right now. And so the lack of that context is just completely unacceptable. So, Brendan, that's quite a bit of low light without a clip, but a tiny snippet of our frustration about this topic. What's a highlight for our listeners? Yeah, I wanted to highlight the outstanding reporting that was brought to the table during the panel of this week. We often, often spotlight the panel on this week for the negative things that happen on those panels, often driven by the kind of poor discourse that we see taking place between their experts, Rahm Emanuel and Chris Christie. But this week on the panel, we did not see those pundits and commentators. Instead, the panel was packed with journalists, and it was fantastic. These are journalists from ABC News. Didn't cost them anything to have these folks on beyond, you know, having these folks on the payroll and paying them for their, you know, services. Uh, And that was Jonathan Carl, who was the White House correspondent, who we've seen co-host this week many times. And it was also Mary Bruce, who covers Congress for ABC News. And Specifically, I wanted to highlight this fantastic reporting from Jonathan Carl, who is kind of giving us a look behind the curtain at what Donald Trump has been doing while he has been very quiet, or at least very not visible to the cameras, since the election. Take a listen to what Jonathan Carl said Trump has been busy with. Here's what's going on uh, over there at the White House with the president. He is making calls and has been for much of the past couple of weeks to state legislators in these key states, particularly in Georgia, mid-level state legislators who are thrilled to get a call from the president of the United States and are telling him exactly what he wants to hear. They're saying that if a session were called, if the vote came up, they would vote to nullify the election results, that they would vote to send a slate of Trump electors uh, to the Electoral College, uh, regardless of of what happened in those states. So the president believes, uh, when, when he says, I won Georgia, he believes that if there was an emergency session called, which, as you pointed out, the governor has refused to do, uh, that he has enough votes there with these Republican state legislators to overturn uh, the election. Does he think he can do that in enough states to win? Is that plausible in Georgia? I mean, no. But I, I believe he's also fixated, frankly, on the number 306. That's the number of electoral votes that Joe Biden has. It's also the number that he had in 2016. And if he's not going to win this election, he's going to want to at least chip away to make sure uh, that, that, that Biden doesn't have the same number that he had four years ago. So I found this both fascinating and also horrifying that this is what President Trump has been busy with and that he is himself boasting about doing, saying that he's been working harder in these three weeks than he has in his entire life. John Carl giving us insight into what's happening in these conversations, who Trump is talking to, what he's learning from it, and what is motivating him. I have not heard this reporting that Trump is fixated on this 306 Electoral College number. And of course, it makes perfect sense that Trump, 
as we know, is very concerned about his ego, concerned about things like numbers, as we heard from day one, how big his crowd is versus Obama's crowd, right? About undoing so many things that Obama himself has done, and now here kind of measuring himself against Biden's win with the Electoral College. So this insight is outstanding, and uh, it's just a small bit of the insight that John Carl provided. He also provided insight into the relationship between Joe, Bi- Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell. So really, really appreciated that, both from Carl and Mary Bruce on the panel, which I thought was, even though they had some great bookings, I thought the panel was probably the best part and most insightful part of this week's episode. So you know, these shows, even Which though, I don't remember the last time George interviewed. Yeah. And we have made that comment. We've made the comment that this week had a decent panel, sometimes when Martha Raddatz hosts. Right. Rarely, I think, I, I literally don't even remember when George hosted and we had that impression. And George himself did a good job with his interviews this week as well in terms of, you know, sitting forwards in the chair and actually doing a good job in the interviews. So... I just want to note for our long-term Polylog listeners, although we've been pretty down on the quality of this week over the last few months, particularly when George Stephanopoulos hosts, it doesn't mean they can't pull out a good episode now and then, and sure enough, they did this week. All right, Naomi, that takes us to our first segment on the topic of vaccines, something we talked about last week, but this week we have even more conversation about it, and things are ramping up. So we wanted to start off with, I think, what was one of the strongest interviews that we saw across the shows that was focused on the coronavirus vaccine, and that was an interview that we saw on Fox News Sunday with Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Chris Wallace was speaking with him, and... I think made a very pointed, explicit question, specifically trying to understand why the vaccine had to be political to begin with. Mr. Secretary, why not stop the politics and let the scientists do their job? Chris, that's exactly what I've done, and I've reassured you and others throughout this process, and that's what's happened. Five independent checks, independent data safety monitoring board, independent drug company reviewing the data to make sure it sir, meets sir, their but ethical but standards. Excuse, I, I, understand, well, I, I understand that, but you've got the president tweeting that somehow the decision on when to release the vaccine was an effort to defeat him in the election. You've got the White House chief of staff calling in the FDA commissioner and saying, let's get going faster. You may be letting the scientists do their job, but people in the White House don't appear to be. Well, Chris, the facts just show that the five independent checks we put in the system are what are driving this train here. And we're also going to work to help improve vaccine confidence, working especially with trusted voices in underserved communities. These were really pointed questions. And this was the best interview with Secretary Azar we saw on the Sunday shows. Azar was also on this week with George Stephanopoulos. George did not do nearly as good a job interviewing him as Chris Wallace. And here we see Chris Wallace just frustrated with the pressure that we have seen in story after story related to so many sides of this coronavirus crisis and now trickling into the vaccine process as well. I found this interview a real experience. I think when I take a step back and thought about the performance of Secretary Azar, My impression was he was doing the best that he could. And with that, I mean, he has a pretty impossible job in that he has to reinforce and encourage public health mandates of 
people should wear their masks, they should social distance, that the vaccine is safe, that they have all these protocols in place, and really touting those accomplishments and and these guidelines that are very important, while at the same time ignoring or diverting the attempts by President Trump to completely undermine all those efforts, right? Yes. And so I think... Secretary Azar is doing the best that he could to really underscore how important these public health mandates are, how close we are to the vaccine, but at the same time, not letting a disagreement that he has with President Trump be the thing that is the takeaway from this interview, to be the viral moment that's like, well, even the Health and Human Service Secretary thinks Trump is full of crap, right? Like, that's not that helpful either for him. And so... If you only listen to part of the interview, you're like, oh, he's like doing a good job. Like he he understands that this is so important and he's really taking it seriously. But when he doesn't contradict the president who is blatantly at this point dangerous with some of his comments around the virus, it, it's hard to hold both of those truths at the same time. It's so interesting hearing you talk about that. Because, of course, we've seen this again and again and again throughout the crisis and, frankly, throughout the Trump administration, where we have career experts and administrators who have to go on the Sunday shows, explain what they're doing, and somehow talk around the issue without angering their boss, right? And without undermining their boss, because their boss is Trump, and Trump will dismiss them, fire them or throw them under the bus or say terrible things about them behind their back or on Twitter for for months uh, before finally dismissing them or pushing them out. And it, it really occurs to me now that we have been talking these last few weeks about how difficult it is for Republican senators or Republican congresspeople to go on the Sunday shows and have to kind of talk around and prance around and walk on eggshells as it relates to Donald Trump winning or losing the election, right? And how difficult the position is that Republicans are in. But it's like, you want a difficult position, try working in the administration where you're actually trying to do a real job and not just comment on things and show up to votes, but do a real job of actually administering an agency, actually running something, actually trying to save lives as people like Azar are doing. And at the same time, you're under even greater scrutiny as somebody representing the Trump administration and not trying to like undermine you know, what Trump himself is saying and doing. So they are are having to walk a much more difficult line than any of these Republicans are having to do. And Azar is, is trying to do the best job he can at this. And one perfect example of this is Azar goes on there and he says, when talking about Joe Biden, he calls him Vice President Biden. And Chris Wallace, he is not having He's any not of that. not having it. Three times Chris Wallace Well, you'll hear what he had to say about it. Take a listen. Let's just take the issue of masks. Here's what President-elect Biden said this week. I'm going to ask the public for 100 days to mask. Just 100 days to mask. Not forever, 100 days. But back on April 3rd, when the CDC director, Dr. Robert Redfield, first recommended that all Americans wear masks, here's what happened, sir. We know that a face barrier can actually interrupt the number of virus particles that can go from one person to the other. So it's voluntary. You don't have to do it. They suggest it for a period of time. 
but uh, this is voluntary. I don't think I'm going to be doing it. If President Trump had worn a mask then and urged everyone to wear a mask then, back in April, the way Joe Biden is right now, wouldn't we be in much better shape? Well, Chris, I, I, I welcome Vice President Biden to the club. Since the middle of April, the president's guidelines for reopening have called well, for wearing masks. Elect, sir. The president has called the president, the president has the president has called mass patriotic acts. Every one of his top advisors, we are out there saying, wear your mask. We talk about the data. You know, Chris, at one meter, if two people wear the mask, it can reduce viral transmission by 72%, protecting both the source and the recipient. We've got the data. Mass work. We encourage people, please wear a mask when you can't engage in social distancing. But, but first of all, it's, it's the president-elect, Joe Biden, Secretary Azar. And secondly, the fact is the president said on the first day, April 3rd, he wasn't going to wear a mask. He didn't wear a mask in public for three months until July. So actually, I misspoke. Four times, four times, Chris Wallace tells the Health and Human Services Secretary it's president-elect Biden, not Vice President Biden. And this was a trend that we saw throughout the episode, even from the Fox News correspondent who is putting together the package at the beginning of the episode, pushing back on President Trump's Georgia rally, basically saying the election is over and Trump will not get over that fact. So what do you think of, first of all, we have to give credit to Fox News and Chris Wallace for literally correcting these people. But what do you say about Secretary Azar in this kind of like nod to President Trump's ego and attempt to undermine the legitimacy of the election. Is it necessary? Is it acceptable? I almost, I don't, it, it's obviously not appropriate, but at this point, literally the last five weeks or so of this administration, it's something that I just expect when hearing from an administration official. And it'd be weird if I didn't almost at this point. I think his role in this COVID response is too important not to hear from regularly. And so I would rather, I don't know, maybe this is like the cynic in me, but I would rather have to like hear these semi-defenses and know that the Health and Human Services Secretary is playing a key role in this than earlier in the pandemic when he was barely on, when he was really sidelined, when we rarely heard from him. And I was so less confident in our federal response. And so I think it's important to have, to know that professionals are actually dealing with this, even when some of the things they have to say is just trash. And, but, it, but it's work on my end to be able to kind of differentiate the two. So it, it doesn't come without a cost. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's where it's so important for these Sunday hosts to be ready to do as Chris Wallace did and push back on it. Dr. Montsef Slawi was on multiple shows again this week. Again, he is the vaccine czar, really leading Operation Warp Speed. And he was on State of the Union, and I thought had some really excellent points when he shared the development of the vaccine and kind of where what it takes to get it out to the American public. Specifically, he reminded all of us that developing and making and and distributing a vaccine is very different than Apple releasing their latest watch. On the manufacturing side, it's turned out to be somewhat more complicated and more difficult than we planned. We probably are six or eight 
week later than an ideal scenario where we would have had 100 million doses by the end of this year. But we're not far and, you know, we'll work very hard. One thing I want to I emphasize, if I may, which is we are manufacturing here biological products. We're not manufacturing a watch or a little phone. This is not an engineering problem. This, these are biological problems. They are extremely complex and we don't control 100% of everything as it happens. There will be small glitches. That's what happens all the time. We have introduced a risk management layer in our communication saying, let's say if we say we will have 100 million people vaccinated by the end of March or mid-March, maybe we could do that by early March. However, there may be some batches of vaccine that don't make it on time, that are delayed, that are not right, particularly in the beginning, in the next two months or three months. So we need to be just aware that this, this is very complex. We're, the, we're doing the best we can, but this is not mathematics. This is biology. As he says there, this isn't your little phone, right? This is this is biological. He is not impressed with Tim Cook. Tim Cook. He's like CEO of Apple. Yes. Really trying to emphasize that this is a biological product that they're giving out free to everyone that logistically is hard to distribute and I I found it really helpful. I think Americans are have one idea of what the healthcare consumer experience is like and that we should just get what we need when we need it. And, you know, Dr. Slawi here is saying there's going to be challenges and it's we're learning as we go. Yeah, this was a really valuable interview. It's been great to have him on the Sunday shows. Absolutely. And we should point out the Trump administration in the last few weeks as the virus cases have gone up and up and up, and as the vaccine has become more and more in the news, they have let basically everyone related to vaccine development and the COVID response team, except maybe the vice president, like they've made them all available for the Sunday shows. And pretty much every Sunday show for the last few weeks has had at least one member of the Trump administration's team on to discuss these topics. And that's a good thing because there were periods, even as the virus was raging, when nobody was made available. Speaking of that, we also saw on Meet the Press, Dr. Burks, and she was on reminding people about just how deadly this virus is. If you remember from last week in Polylog, we spotlighted how seriously she was talking about people's potential exposure during the Thanksgiving holiday, that people should assume that they themselves have been exposed and should be very careful and even potentially masking within their own homes. Here's what she said about the vulnerability of older Americans to this virus at a time when, in fact, infections are higher than they have ever been. And we cannot go into the holiday season, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, with this same kind of attitude that those those gatherings don't apply to me. They apply to everybody. If you don't want to lose your grandparents, your aunts, let's be clear 70, if you're over 70, 20% of those over 70 who contract COVID are hospitalized and still 10% of them are lost. So if you have anyone in your family with comorbidities or over 70, you cannot do those things. You cannot gather with your mask off. You cannot hug and kiss people outside. We won't have a vaccine for even the most vulnerable Americans. I'm thrilled with the vaccine. Right. 
but we won't have them for the most vulnerable Americans until February. So we need to do this now. Yes, the nursing homes will be vaccinated, but there's 100 million Americans that have these comorbidities that put them at substantial risk. Well, it's been literally nine to 10 months that we've been in this experience. I think it's still important for public health officials like Dr. Burks to remind us all what is at stake specifically for vulnerable populations and that there's real consequence for lax gatherings due to COVID fatigue and that we probably all have someone that we love dearly that is extremely vulnerable. And if they were to contract the the coronavirus, it puts them on a path that is extremely dangerous. And so it's really stark numbers that 20% of 70-year-old plus coronavirus patients get admitted to a hospital. Like that is that is quite significant. So while there will be some vulnerable populations getting the vaccine this month, specifically residents of nursing homes, there's a lot of vulnerable people not in nursing homes that we still need to be careful about and we still yeah, need to protect. Million, yeah, says. there's a lot of them. So get tracked together. Yeah, I mean, two things stand out to me in this conversation. Number one is, why don't we see any questions, and I didn't see any throughout these Sunday shows, about additional therapeutics or therapeutics like the antibody treatment that President Trump was privy to that have been now approved for emergency use and seem to be very, very effective at slowing the virus's progression and reducing symptoms and the severity of symptoms in people who get it, particularly those who are older like President Trump. Why aren't there discussions about that availability to these Americans? I think it's because, you know, the vaccine issue has eclipsed that discussion. But still, in this period, those are things that are going to be really, really important. And I think it's it's very, very disappointing that there have been no questions about that. Because as we've learned, those types of treatments can be very complicated to administer and are often best administered earlier when people get the virus before maybe their symptoms are severe enough to even put them in the hospital, but they have to go to the hospital to receive that treatment. So it's a bit of a conundrum there. I'd like to see more conversation on that. Second thing that comes to mind is the starkness of these numbers that she is mentioning. You know, exposing someone who is over 70, if they get the virus, they have a one in 10 chance of dying, right? One in 10 chance of dying from that virus. That's essentially, it's it's almost like a Russian roulette, right? The game, the terrible game of Russian roulette where someone puts a, a gun, a, a puts a bullet in a revolver. Revolvers typically have six bullets in their chambers and then you spin it around and you put it to your head and you fire, you pull the trigger and you see if you die, right? That is kind of what happens when someone who is 70 gets this virus. There is a very meaningful, significant chance that they will perish when they get this virus. And that's what people have to realize when they are potentially exposing their loved ones to this virus. But there are so many questions specifically about the vaccine and what it'll mean in the future and what does it mean to the people who are taking it or just on every angle. And some questions are they're able to be answered and some they are not. On State of the Union, Jake Tapper asked a really important question around the potential 
for people who have been vaccinated to still spread the virus, which really goes to the potential future behaviors of people who have been vaccinated. After you've been vaccinated, let's say I get vaccinated, will I still be able to spread the virus even if I no longer uh, am at risk of, of serious illness? We don't know the answer to that very important question. I think, given the level of efficacy achieved, that most people will control the virus to the extent that they will not be infectious to others. But we yet have to demonstrate that. That work, we may have a first answer to it somewhere in February, March, from the trial that we have conducted already, further analysis and some you know, analysis in blood and things like that. But there are also, we're discussing clinical trials where we may be able to assess whether people actually on a daily basis shed virus or stop shedding the virus when they have been immunized uh, and exposed to the, to the, to this, uh, to the infection. And so we don't know the answer. We need to remain cautious. We need to remain taking our precautions until a very large majority of the population is immunized. So once again, we see Jake Tapper asking some of the most practical questions. He was the one who was asking about kids and when they can get the vaccine last week. And here he is asking this important question that everyone wants to know and goes towards whether or not we will have to keep wearing our masks after we are vaccinated, right? And and how safe it is to gather. I mean, I think in the same way that there's this assumption of I got tested, I'm negative, I can go to a party. <laughs> which is problematic on, on so many levels. But I think it's really valuable to have this conversation front and center at the start of the vaccine deployment for people to understand that there still might be limits as to what you can do. Even You might be safe, but it doesn't mean the people around you are. Well, and I think it goes to, to an important point about what a vaccine really is, right? A vaccine, we often think of it as like a shield. It stops us from getting the virus. That's not what vaccines are. Vaccines are basically instructions for your own immune system to attack and kill the virus once you are infected with the virus, right? And so if you are infected with that virus, then you can potentially possibly spread it if your immune system takes a little while to ramp up with the instructions that are provided to fight the virus, right? Well, the idea is that you can contract it, but your body will be able to fight it. So the question is, what is the risk of those around you when you potentially have it in in your own system, in your own body? Yeah, and your body is fighting it, right? So it's, it's an important piece of science that people need to get their heads around. And unfortunately, as Slowey answers here, we don't have the answer yet, right? And that's going to be a very frustrated, frust- frustrating thing for people, especially once they're vaccinated. They want to be able to say, we can go back to our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's a lot of people with that expectation. Okay, now we're going to cover this next bit kind of quickly because we have a lot of other things to get to, but it's an important, important conversation and an issue that I hadn't even thought of. We had talked about previously that the 20 million people can get vaccinated in the month of December. But there's an interesting little asterisk next to that, and that is that there are 40 million doses of the vaccine available. And the thinking had been that with that 40 million, 
because you need to get two doses of the vaccine, you need to get an initial vaccine, and then a few weeks later, you need to get a booster. This is true of lots of vaccines. You know, you probably remember this back when you were vaccinated or when your children were vaccinated, that you get the initial dose of vaccine, and then a few weeks later, or even a month later, you come back in for what they call a booster shot, right? Well, this vaccine is no different. And so the assumption, the operating assumption has been that with these 40 million doses, we would be able to vaccinate just 20 million people, right? Because you have to cut that in half. Half of it goes to them immediately, and the other half goes to them a few weeks later. But Face the Nation has kind of scrambled this thinking and said, well, wait a minute, why don't we just, instead of having that second half just sitting on a shelf for a few weeks, let's get it out to 40 million people and then get them their second dose once we've manufactured more. Margaret Brennan asked this question specifically to Monsef Slawi. Here's how he answered. We know from Operation Warp Speed, you will have 40 million doses of vaccine this month, but the plans to vaccinate 20 million people. Why not use that first 40 million that you have to hit a broad swath of people and then uh, when supply increases, go back for that second dose? Why hit 20, not 40 out of the gate? Yes, it's a very important question and one that we have debated and studied in depth. The full immunization schedule for these vaccines is to have two doses of vaccine, either three weeks or four weeks apart. That's how we achieve 95% efficacy broadly and, in fact, 100% efficacy against severe disease. We don't know how the behavior of the vaccine would be if we omit to give the second dose at three weeks or at four weeks after the first dose. We are at the onset of the industrial manufacturing of these vaccines. Every dose we make, we are prepared to ship. But, you know, as always, early in manufacturing, there may be challenges. Sometimes vaccine doses can be delayed by a week or a few days Mm -hmm. or, God forbid, by three weeks. It would be inappropriate to partially immunize large numbers of people and not complete their immunization. I think it may actually decrease the confidence in the vaccine. We want to do things by exactly how they were studied and how they have been approved. So there's a very measured answer and explanation for why they're doing things the way they're doing it or why they're prepared to. But later on Face the Nation, of course, of course, Margaret Brennan spoke with Scott Gottlieb, former FDA administrator to Donald Trump, and he had a different take on this. Dr. Slowey said it was, you know, to be careful in case of manufacturing issues. Um, Do you think that was the right call? Look, I would be trying to push out as much vaccine as possible, recognizing that the supply ramps very quickly in 2021. And you have to take a little bit of a risk that the supply is going to be there in 2021 to give everyone who gets vaccinated in 2020 the second dose. This is a crisis. We need to get as many vaccines in arms as possible, in my view. Um, And that means pushing out all the available supply or most of it. You might want to hold a little bit in reserve, but not much. Uh, The supply does ramp. The first dose is partially protective, probably. The data does suggest that. Uh, so I think we want to spread as much vaccine as possible. If we, have, if we can't get the people who get their first dose, the second dose in 2021, we're going to have bigger problems than just the fact that th- those people didn't get the second dose of vaccination. So we need to take a little bit of risk here. Just super fascinating stuff here by Dr. Slowey and by Dr. Gottlieb with, I think, 
potential outcomes that are highly dependent on our country's ability to execute. And we haven't, I don't know, it's very nerve wracking. We haven't done that well this year. And so there's this question of let's do as much as we can as quickly as we can versus what can we actually do well? And it'd be great if we can do the former, but I don't know. I'm, I'm torn with what I'm, there's what I hope our country can do and what I think they can do. Yeah, it's interesting. This topic came up in other areas of discussion with Scott Gottlieb, particularly about how the FDA has been extra careful in providing authorization, emergency authorization for the coronavirus vaccines and how the UK has kind of leaped ahead of us and is now slated to begin vaccinating its population this Tuesday, which is well ahead or actually end up, it might end up being just like five days ahead of the US in terms of when shots go into arms. But still, it's ahead of us. And that's irked a number of people. Scott Gottlieb was talking about that. And I feel like Gottlieb is very much along the lines of there's a reason why we call it emergency use authorization. There's a reason why we're doing this as fast as we can. And we need to not forget that reason in our you know carefulness here. And we need to have some faith and take some risk because people are dying. And every minute, literally more people are dying from this crisis. And so it's not a place where we need to be, certainly we need to be taking safety into account, but we also need to recognize that being cautious also has a cost, right? A true cost in lives. And the difference between 20 million people being vaccinated and potentially 40 million people having some protection from this virus is a very big difference, especially when there's so much virus in the population this December. But I love to see this discussion on the Sunday shows. Smart people with smart, reasonable reasons arguing different points and perspectives when it comes to public policy. This is what the Sunday shows should be about. Right. And I think this is to also highlight that we're not always expecting just solid, confirmed answers. We also want the Sunday shows to pose important questions to us, for us to consider, for us to keep in mind as our elected leaders and other thought leaders are making decisions that could have profound impacts on us. And I think another interesting point, and we don't have the clip for it, but Dr. Slawi at one point mentioned there's an ethical question as to whether or not the people in the placebo group in the vaccine trials should be in the first or early waves of the vaccine distribution and that it seems fair, but you know the vaccine advisory board from the CDC has to think about that or, or vote on it. And there's just a lot of angles that will determine who gets the vaccine, when, what that means for you and your community, for your coworkers, for your family. And it's it's not enough to us just to care when it gets to us in May, right? Because there's going to be a lot of impacts to our own lives way before that. Absolutely. Another important point. But now let's get to another area of discussion. Certainly COVID has hurt the health of America. It's also also hurt the economy of America. And as we were mentioning earlier, COVID relief is now finally back on the table thanks to a bipartisan group of senators and congresspeople who are working this to actually get a deal. And this deal is a $908 billion package And it was pretty well summarized right before one of the interviews on Fox News Sunday. Take a listen to 
what is potentially in this package. After months of failed negotiations, there are signs of a possible compromise on, on coronavirus relief. A bipartisan group of senators is pushing a $908 billion package that would boost unemployment benefits by $300 a week, provide $288 billion for struggling small businesses, and $160 billion for state and local governments. So there's a great breakdown on where it is, and that was right before the interview with Republican Senator Bill Cassidy. Senator Cassidy is from Louisiana. I don't know if we've seen him on before. I, I don't think he's been on that frequently, but we were very impressed with the professionalism with which he approached all of his answers on Fox News Sunday. Take a listen to his discussion with Chris Wallace on this very topic. And Chris Wallace once again employed his lightning round style where he asks quick questions, expects quick answers, and Cassidy was there ready with those answers. Here he is talking about the possibility of passage and why this is so important right now. Senator, what are the chances that Congress will pass this compromise plan that your bipartisan group has come up with and I guess more specifically, have you been, how assured are you that Senate Majority Leader McConnell will support it and that President Trump will sign it? President Trump has indicated that he would sign a $908 billion package. There's only one $908 billion package out there, that's ours. Leader McConnell has said he's not interested in making a point. He wants something which passes into law. It only can pass into law if it's bipartisan in the House and the Senate and ours is. Now, neither have said, oh, we'll sign your bill. That's fair. We have final language. Our final language, Chris, will probably come out early this week, earlier this week. Uh, and so then people can look at it and we can modify it as needed. But the indications I get, the pain of the American people is driving this. And I'm optimistic that both those leaders will come on board. So kudos here to Senator Cassidy for really centering this on the American, the experience of the American people. Every interview that does not center on the American people, but is about, you know, industries or jobs, like they're not getting it. They're not getting that people are suffering, that people can't feed their children, that people don't know how they're, if they're going to be homeless next year. Like the pain and suffering needs to be front and center in every conversation around the COVID relief. It, especially because it's a COVID relief bill. It is not a stimulus bill. And so to talk about anything other than the immediate relief that people and also state and local governments need, I think, is is foolish. And so just strong props to Senator Cassidy for doing that so effectively. Absolutely. And speaking of that, you know, the original assumption was that this relief would be kind of a stimulus as well. I mean, that's what the Democrats wanted to do with a bill like this right, months exactly. and months ago. But it has now been split, you know, relief is in this bill and potentially stimulus later. Senator Mark Warner, Democrat of Virginia, who is also kind of pushing for this package, he was on State of the Union and answered whether Democrats were going to accept the fact that this has kind of like bifurcated the stimulus and right. the relief sides of this bill. Uh, Senator Warner, you've been a critical part of this team negotiating the $908 billion deal. President-elect Biden told me he thinks it should pass. But House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer called it just a starting point for further negotiations. Are Schumer and Pelosi at this point hindering your ability to get this deal done? Well, Jake, 
this is a compromise. There's been a group of eight of us. It's grown to 10 that have worked over the last two weeks every day, uh, except for Thanksgiving. We're going to have another multi-hour call today. Um, for those of us who are Democrats, we would have preferred a bigger plan for my Republican colleagues. They would have liked the plan that Mitch McConnell put out at about $500 billion. This is a compromise. Neither side is going to get the full amount or the all the component parts that they wanted. But as you pointed out, with the economy weakening, with 200,000 additional cases of the virus yesterday, and with so many of these initiatives from the first CARES package running out as soon as the day after Christmas, you know, it would be, you know, what I call stupidity on steroids if Congress doesn't act. And um, we're going to keep at it. I think $908 billion for a targeted four-month relief um, plan for a bridge to a Biden administration. I think this is the direction the Congress needs to move in. I mean, I think Senator Warner here is accomplishing a few things in this response. One, to just demonstrate the bipartisan approach for this bill and that really giving this bill legs in a way that we haven't seen in other efforts previous previously. I think that alone is is comforting or builds confidence. But two, just reinforcing that this is only expected through April and that this is a very, what he says, a targeted four-month relief plan. So I think it, it hampers down or kind of brings down the expectations away from what Pelosi was trying to accomplish earlier this year to a much more strategic, narrow focus that seems at this point more doable. Yeah, and there was some interesting reporting from Mary Bruce, the ABC News senior congressional correspondent, about this, talking about how Biden stepping in, as we heard in the intro here, and pushing for this to pass has really helped the Democrats to get away from this idea of it having to be two things, stimulus and relief all at once, that it could be relief and then they could move forwards with it. But that doesn't mean there aren't parts of this bill that have been sticking points for Democrats beyond the number on there. There are parts of the bill that Republicans have pushed into the bill, such as liability protection for corporations that have raised the ire of several, you know, lots of progressive and Democrats, progressives and Democrats on that side of the aisle. Take a listen to this answer from Senator Bill Cassidy, again, the Republican senator from the interview on Fox News Sunday. Now, Democrats have made it clear, not in your group, but generally that they oppose liability protection for businesses that reopened during the pandemic. Is that non-negotiable for Republicans? Does that have to be in the bill? Define non-negotiable. There has to be some, there has to be some liability protection. Think about it. At first, CDC and Dr. Fauci were saying, don't wear a mask. And then they were saying, wear a mask. And so there's been ambiguity as we have gone through. And then think of that small restaurant when people were told not to wear a mask and now someone's going to file a claim. Just the discovery would make them bankrupt. So we've got to have something, but it has to be something that we negotiate that's acceptable to both. And frankly, that's one of the sticking points right now. So we had a pretty lengthy conversation about this, Brendan. And just to kind of quickly review some of the things that were sticking points to us. Off the top of my head, it seems to me like Senator Cassidy is making a really excellent point that the mixed public health messaging that we received in the first 
especially eight to 10 weeks of this pandemic, were extremely confusing for the average American, average consumer, but also for an employer, right? And that you don't know whether or not it's safe for your employees to convene at your place of work. So that there needs to be some liability protection makes sense. But I think what is harder is that because this pandemic has been going on for so long, that there are employers who have been negligent, who have been irresponsible when we know, once we figured out how this virus works, right? Or they weren't putting enough protections in place for their workers. And there's no kind of like, we must do this, we must do that. It's all very gray and it's going to be, I'm very curious as to what they ultimately end up deciding because a confused employer in April is very different than a negligent employer in August. And I could see them both trying to make the same claim that they need protection. You're absolutely right, Naomi. This is such a difficult, difficult topic of discussion because when you think about workplace safety guidelines and laws, often those are very complex things, right? The law is written and then there are specific rules and regulations that get pushed down to corporations and then there are legally mandated trainings for a lot of these rules and that the corporations then have to certify that they've potentially done these trainings. For example, think about sexual harassment trainings. Um, And then that workers have to take this training and the education has to go out there. And then there are inspections and then certifications that they are in compliance with these trainings. There's so much that goes into these sorts of workplace guidelines. And it's a huge infrastructure around it that is built up from the trainings to the certifications to the inspections to you know to the actual fines and and other things that, that go into it and reporting that goes into it covid has had basically none of that instead what we've had are these rules that get pushed out and as we know through co- you know the way that the federal government has handled it is to push it down to the states push it down to localities And the states have had changing guidelines and rules often by the week, sometimes by the day. Sometimes they change things, as we've seen in California here, where there's one set of rules that, you know, says that businesses have one month to, you know, a few weeks to deal with something. And then suddenly you have a governor like Governor Newsom who pulls the emergency break because numbers are going up and the rules suddenly change overnight. So... This is a very, very complicated place for businesses to be. But then at the same time, how do you protect workers, right? How do you make sure that workers are not being abused or workers because they have to get that paycheck because the government hasn't really been helping them in the way that other countries have helped their workers? How do you protect them and their safety, especially when they're afraid? So it's, it's such a complex topic. And I don't know how, how they work through it in this sort of package. But it's it's. But not the conversation easy. we've seen, at least on the Sunday news shows, have not been this nuanced, and I think that's no. what we were kind of stuck on 
is that it's hard to talk through because we haven't seen very thorough conversations about it. It's just like, of course, employers need protection or of course we need to worry about, you know, the the average worker or the Amazon worker. It's been very kind of waving your flag on your on your respective side as opposed to trying to understand or, or see how they might be different or it's just been a little frustrating to try to learn and, and kind of grow specifically around this specific angle around liability protection and it's a shame because it's a sticking point. It's a sticking point in this COVID relief bill. So we as American people should understand this sticking point better. So we could be appropriately angry if this bill is not moving forward at the speed as it should be. It's, it's If there's a hiccup, we should understand it is what I'm trying to understand. And I feel like we haven't that much. And I'm hoping the Sunday shows put more attention to it. Absolutely. It could be a whole a whole episode just on that topic. At least a whole interview. My goodness. (laughs) Yes. But we must, must, must talk about what the hell is going on in Georgia. So in terms of the presidential election, Georgia certified their results and it the state went to Biden, despite what President Trump thinks. And state officials are moving forward with those election results. President Trump is pretty angry about that. On the other side, there's also two Senate runoff seats, which is literally going to determine control of the Senate, which has President Trump talking about Georgia in Georgia, influencing Georgia voters. And it's really converged these two issues, these two moments on top of each other, which means that Trump's false allegations of voter fraud are impacting the Senate races and the senators in who are who you know, the senators and the and the candidates are also commenting on Trump's comments as well. Like there's this whole tension between those two yes. issues. Yes. And so this week there was lots of discussion about Georgia. Of course, literally the night before Trump was there, as you mentioned, Naomi, campaigning and also complaining. <laughs> yeah, yes. totally. Campaigning and complaining. I mean, that's his whole presidency. Right. <laughs> Very true. So. We wanted to highlight a few discussion points from that. And to start off, let's hear from Gabriel Sterling. He is a voting system implementation manager for the state of Georgia. He is the individual who gave a very fiery address about how frustrated he was about the level of rhetoric that Trump is bringing to the table and literally putting other Republican state officials in jeopardy in physical jeopardy. Take a listen to this interview on Meet the Press. Well, I'm just curious, um, what was it that sparked your decision to come out um, uh, as, uh, as you know, to come out as direct as you came out earlier this week? Was there a specific incidents or incidents that have been happening to you or others? It wasn't happening. I mean, obviously, I have a police car outside my house right now. I can see it out the right side of my peripheral vision. There's been police protection for the secretary, his wife received sexual uh, violent uh, threats on her personal cell phone. But what, for lack of a better word, set me off on Tuesday was about an hour before, an hour and a half before a previously scheduled news conference, I got a call from the project manager from Dominion Voting Systems for out of Colorado, who was telling me in a very audibly shaken voice that one of their contractors had received some threats um, in Gwinnett County. And this is just a young tech. He took a job a few weeks ago. He's one of the better ones. 
And the one I was going through the Twitter feed on it, and I saw it, it basically had the young man's name, which is a very unique name. So they tracked down his family and started harassing them. And it said his name, you have committed treason. May God have mercy on your soul with a slowly swinging noose. And at that point, I just said, I'm done. Yeah, if anyone hasn't seen that press conference that included Gabriel Sterling, highly recommend you just open up Twitter and, I don't know, Georgia Sterling or whatever. It was a very, very powerful statement. He was just so livid and really calls out President Trump for his behavior and his comments and the fact that President Trump has not condemned these types of comments and behaviors. He also calls out other Republican leaders who are completely silent on this matter and how disappointing that is as well, and that their silence is, in fact, making them complicit if anything happens. And really describing his fear that someone's going to get hurt, someone could die. Yeah, he said, all of you who haven't said a damn word are complicit. So one, just an amazing booking by Meet the Press for actually getting Gabriel Sterling on. But two... Gabriel Sterling's a Republican. He voted for President Trump. He is going to be voting for Purdue and Loeffler, he says. But it still doesn't mean that he can just ignore the will of the people and not do his job. Like that's both of those things are true that he wished Trump had won, but he's completely that he's completely livid at the lack of respect that people have for the will of the voters. Yeah, and Trump is still out there calling these elections officials in Georgia names and and things like enemies of the people. It's just absolutely, absolutely disturbing and unacceptable. And the shows were full of these Republican Georgia officials pushing back on this. We also heard from the Secretary of State of Georgia himself. He is, again, a Republican official who voted for President Trump, wanted President Trump to win, and is now under threat, being threatened, being targeted for doing his job. And Brad Raffsberger was on this week, and George Stephanopoulos asked him a really important question that I think, again, he has had very, very measured answers, very, very thoughtful answers, but also firm in in different ways. And George asked him, like, what, what would you tell Republicans in your state who just will not accept the fact that Joe Biden won. What's your message to Republicans who refuse to accept the election results? It's one of those situations when you're in an 80% Trump county, you just don't understand. But there are other counties that feel exactly the opposite. And then today, we as Republicans didn't turn out enough voters. Our office as Secretary of State is really just to look what those votes totals were and we report the results. And that's why it gets back to the state party didn't do their job, didn't raise enough money and didn't turn out enough people. But there's no doubt in your mind President Trump lost the state of Georgia, lost the election. Yeah, sad, but sad, but true. Uh, I wish he would have won. I'm a conservative Republican and uh, I'm disappointed, but those are the results. So there we have it. Multiple Republicans, Republican state leaders in Georgia, just not handling very well the noise and chaos that has descended upon Georgia since the presidential election, which, by the way, was a month ago. It's literally been a month of this nonsense. I think Raffensperger also adds a really important point here, and it's something that we don't talk about enough in politics. We talk a lot about the way Americans in the age of the internet have 
lived in an echo chamber, right? An echo chamber of their own making. They choose, you know, whatever their political party and persuasion is, they get their news from that space. They frequent places on the internet that reinforce their political beliefs, their political ideas and information. But what Raffensperger is pointing out is that geographically, we are stratified. Geographically, we are in places often where we are surrounded by individuals who reflect our own values, our own thinking, our own politics. And that's why, not just because of where people are getting their information, what's on their phones and on their iPads and on their computers at home, but who's across the street from them, who they pass in the grocery you know, store aisle, how many political signs they see outside their door that oftentimes they are in counties that are 80% Trump or 80% Biden. And so it's when they hear things on their iPhone or in, in the internet that are telling them that things have been stolen, it's very easy for them to look around and say, yeah, you're right, you know? I don't see anyone and I don't talk to anyone who thinks otherwise. How could it be possible? I just can't believe it, right? We saw that when Martha Raddatz went across the country and spoke to a bunch of Trump uh, supporters, right? Who said, I just can't believe that, you know, 80 million people voted for Biden. You think Donald Trump has won? Absolutely, I do. I mean, for me to believe that Joe Biden got 78 million votes, got the most votes of any president ever in the history of of voting. I I find that very hard to believe. Uh, You know, I just don't believe it because they don't see it in their world because we have become so separated geographically by politics. And that's a real problem and a real issue that needs to be discussed more broadly. I mean, I think that's true of Democrats who are surprised that people vote for President Trump. Absolutely. I mean, it's not something that is singular to Georgia or singular to Republicans in any way. In this segment, we also wanted to briefly discuss an interview that was kind of taking over Twitter today, and that's the interview that George Stephanopoulos had with Senator Mike Braun. Senator Braun is a senator, a Republican senator from the state of Indiana. And Braun seemed to be repeating a lot of the conspiracy theories and allegations and lies, frankly, that President Trump has been saying about the election. We thought that George Stephanopoulos did a pretty good job about pushing back and clarifying to the viewer. So whether uh, we dismiss it reflexively, uh, whether we would find widespread fraud, there's a wide gulf in between. And I think that when you just say that there's nothing there, you're going to have half of the country uncertain about what just happened and disgruntled going into the future. Sir, I think it's pretty hard to argue that it's been reflexively dismissed. What you've had since the election is certification processes in every state. So those include audits and in many states recounts. Those certifications have been done in many states led by Republican governors like Arizona and Georgia. There have been more than uh, 55 lawsuits brought forward by the president and his allies, 38 have been dismissed by judges. There have been investigations directed by the Justice Department, by the Attorney General. The Attorney General came back and said there's no evidence of widespread fraud. So the process has played out, hasn't it? And there's no evidence of widespread fraud. Why can't you accept the results? I think it's easy to say it's played out because that might be the uh, most convenient thing to say. But let's look at what the uh, Secretary of State did not mention in Georgia. You know, the video where after a uh, counting place closed, uh, you see boxes of ballots 
coming out from underneath the table. I know that's kind of a graphic example, but... Uh, well, I have to stop you right you there. Got... No, that, uh, it wasn't mentioned because it didn't show anything improper. He's spoken to that this week. They, that was exactly the proper process for counting the ballots. There wasn't anything wrong shown in that video at all. So you're just throwing out a claim out it, there that, that, that doesn't prove what you're saying. I think unless you scrutinize something like that further, or what about like... It was scrutinized. Where there were... Where there were couple hundred thousand absentee ballots that got cast without a request for it. All I can tell you is if you don't at least give perfunctory kind of uh, investigation into it, uh, whether it's December 14th and what happens beyond, you're going to have a good part of the country. It's over 50 percent that view that something is amiss, and that's going to carry forward in terms of undermining a democracy. Um, I just don't think that if you say, if you don't pursue it, overturn every stone. So ABC News and This Week and George Stephanopoulos have received a lot of criticism today for having on Senator Mike Braun, having this conversation with somebody who is spewing this sort of misinformation about the election, about the democratic process. And this criticism is basically saying, look, you don't invite on Holocaust deniers. You don't invite on people who are anti-vaxxers, right? And oftentimes, nowadays, you don't invite on people who are deniers of climate change. These subjects have been recognized to have been settled and to invite people on who are going to deliberately spew misinformation is, in the estimation of these critical voices, unacceptable, inappropriate, and dangerous to provide a platform for individuals like this to spew no, you know, absolute misinformation, right? So our take on this is to look at what actually happened, right? What occurred during this interview? How did this all take place? Is it appropriate for this week to have invited on Senator Braun? So looking at the interview overall, okay? Number one, first, Senator Braun is a senator. The whole purpose of the Sunday morning political shows is to, in the words of Meet the Press, make sure that our elected officials who are representing us actually meet the press, meet the hard questions, face the hard questions, face the nation, actually, <laughs> right? I mean, these are, these are the names of these shows, and this is what the goal is of these shows, to submit them to difficult questions, and to hold them to account. You cannot hold somebody to account if you are saying that they are somehow not going to be invited on just because you don't agree with what they're saying or you think what they are saying is not supported by the facts. Politicians have for centuries dissembled. Politicians have for centuries spewed misinformation, twisted information, Spun information, that's what the whole idea of spin is, right? This is just the reality of politics. Certainly, we could say that what Mike Braun is doing and what President Trump is doing is dangerous to democracy. But any misinformation, any false information is dangerous for democracy. Any false information is dangerous to platform. But that is why you have journalists on who are hopefully trained in pushing back on that are skilled at pushing back on that, at correcting misinformation, at fact-checking, and combating that information and actually 
bringing that debate, bringing sunlight and facts and truth to them and to the public who is watching, okay? I wanna say those things. Then we can talk about how George actually conducted this interview. First of all, he presented a lot of data and facts at the start of the interview. Almost every one of his questions, as we saw here, was rooted in those facts. He interrupted with fact checks throughout. He didn't catch every piece of misinformation, as we saw there at the end of this clip. Mike Braun talks about hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots that got cast without a request for it. That is not true. And George Stephanopoulos missed that, and it is unfortunate. And I wish that he had been able to push back on that. But he closes the interview, again, by saying that there is no basis of fact here. And I think overall, it was a well-conducted interview. I think it was reasonable to have a senator on. I think that is the purpose and the mission of these shows. And I think George conducted it well. Naomi, what is your take on this? I've been talking for a very long time. I think it's tricky. I think in general, I would argue and agree that shows need to be careful with who they host or who they invite on. I think the shows need to be careful about which voices they elevate. I think being on the show is a privilege, right? And if there's someone who is going to be true and genuine and give you the benefit of the doubt and kind of give that context as to whatever the topic is, that's the person you pick over the one who says you're a great interview, but a great interviewer, but lies all the time, right? I, I we're assuming the shows are, are making that judgment call. Where I think transparency would be especially valuable is why did this week book Senator Braun? Did they ask every other Republican senator and this was the one that said yes? Did they ask Ms. Mitch McConnell and Mitch McConnell said Senator Braun is going to be going on for, for Republicans this week? Like, what was the motivation that made the show feel comfortable in booking Senator Braun. We don't always, always get that. We usually get, hey, we t invited every Republican and no one said yes. That That's the kind of the disclaimer that we get. But when there's potential responses like this, or even afterward, I think the shows could do a long way from settling any confusion as to why they even spoke with that person to share why they were invited on to begin with. Yeah, that's a very good point. What was their goal in the interview? You know, why did you invite this person on? And what do you want to get from the interview? And the final caveat I will add to what I said earlier is that these interviews do make me uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable because I'm not always sure that these shows are well-equipped to deal with this level of misinformation. I do not think a single one of these shows has the infrastructure in place to systematically combat misinformation on this level and at this scale. Not one of these shows has put made fact-checking a major segment of the program, and that is unacceptable. In this world, in this space, fact-checking needs to be a segment. It needs to be built into the fabric of your show. It reminds me sort of of what they say about how you want to create governance. You want to create governance not for the best people to lead your organization. You want to make governance because even the worst or the stupidest people will be able to run things safely and smoothly, right? You have to design it to make it kind of idiot-proof. I would love for there to be a structure built into these shows where no matter who is on, and no matter how good the interviewer is and how prepared they are, 
at the end of the show, they go back, review the facts, review what was true, what was not true, explain why it isn't true, explain what the sources of that truth are. None of that is built into any of these shows. It is so dependent on whether these interviewers prepare. And a lot of times, they don't. And a lot of times, that's George. Today, he did prepare, but he still wasn't as prepared as he necessarily needed to be for this interview. All important things to keep in mind. And if, and I guess I would argue these these are good media literacy habits in general. It doesn't matter if you're just listening to Republicans. Maybe it's a Democrat who says something that you don't hear any other the other Democrats saying. Or maybe it's a local or state leader who says things that you're just like, this is out of nowhere. And I this goes against what I heard the previous month. Like, I think it's always, always really valuable to understand why that conversation is happening to begin with to help you understand how much you should listen and take away from it. Absolutely. All right, Naomi. So a quick show rankings this week. For me, the shows that stand out the most are this week, which we've talked about a lot. I think they had good bookings. I thought their panel was outstanding. And the other show that stands out to me a lot is Face the Nation. Really, really made me think about the coronavirus in new ways, and the vaccine in particular. Oh, interesting. I thought Fox News Sunday did a pretty good job and Meet the Press did a good job. I think in general, the shows held their own. I agree on that. So how are we going to do these rankings? So I think I would say one, this week, two, Meet the Press, three, Face the Nation, four, Fox News Sunday, and five, State of the Union. I think you're about right. Again, everyone did a pretty good job this week. I don't think Face the Nation covered the COVID relief package really much at all. So that's kind of a ding against them. But their coverage of the vaccine was absolutely fascinating. Uh, Yeah, and I think in general, I don't think any show had minute one to minute end, minute 42, minute 43 or whatever from start to end perfect. But I thought every single show had value that you could watch and and have actionable information for your life. Very, very true. Good shows here to close out the year. So this week for our dialogue challenge, I think, uh, what, what would you do, Naomi? I would talk to your family, talk to your coworkers, and get a sense of how people feel about vaccines in general, vaccines for their children, vaccines for the flu vaccine for themselves, and the COVID vaccine. Just, I think a series of level setting conversations could be really helpful to understand how you and the people you love feel about this upcoming vaccine and how it might hopefully change our lives. Yes, and we will put in the show notes a fascinating, really important article that I really appreciated from Tara Hale. She is a medical studies core topic leader from the Association of Healthcare Journalists, and she wrote an article called How Reporting on People's Intent to Get a COVID-19 Vaccine Can Harm Public Health. And she pointed out that kind of the most important thing when it comes to whether people are going to get vaccines is what they see those around them doing. And that's why these conversations are so important, often more important than what we see covered in the news media. So as kind of a starter to that, I would recommend taking a look at this article available in our show notes. That's it today for Polylog. You can email us if you want to share 
any thoughts or ideas with us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me at bstidle on Twitter. You can follow me at Twitter at sotonaomi underscore, and you can always follow the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk with you next week. Bye. At, on our episode 200. Talk then. Bye. Bye.